You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The heart of where innovation, money, and power collide in Silicon Valley and beyond. This is Bloomberg Technology with Caroline Hyde and Ed Ludlow. I'm Caroline Hyde of Bloomberg's World Headquarters in New York. And I'm Ed Ludlow in San Francisco. This is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up, Microsoft and labor unions, they form a historic alliance on artificial intelligence. While the software giant's president says there's no guarantee that AI won't displace jobs. We'll break down the announcement. And as global regulators examine Microsoft's $13 billion investment in OpenAI, the company has a simple response. It doesn't own a stake. We'll discuss the antitrust concerns. Plus, the EU reaches a preliminary deal in what's seen as a key part of the world's first comprehensive, you guessed it, artificial intelligence regulation. We'll discuss that and so much more throughout the hour. The big piece of news is Microsoft. Actually, there are two pieces of news is. Uh, news is news. On the one hand, this kind of relationship with AFL-CIO, a broad agreement with unions to cooperate on artificial intelligence. The other more specific piece of news is a case study involving a few hundred staff at a very specific video games unit where AI has been brought into the collective bargaining agreement. I want to bring in Bloomberg's Jackie Davlos. She is the host of AI IRL on Bloomberg. Let's start with the video game unit. Tell us the details of what happened overnight. Well, the communication workers of America basically agreed with Microsoft that they will be allowed to incorporate some AI language into their collective bargaining agreement. And that move was really one of the first where you saw Microsoft agreeing to have some language um, in those contracts. And that goes hand in hand with that broader announcement that we saw today in collaboration with AFL-CIO. Now, many people may not realize that this labor organization encompasses over 12.5 million workers. That includes other affiliated unions like SAG-AFTRA, like the Writers Guild, um, the Teachers Union. So a real broad-based organization coming together with Microsoft in one of the first partnerships of its kind that is tackling how to handle artificial intelligence impact on workers, what they can do to both come to the table and say, where are workers being impacted and how can we best prepare them? And to that end, we heard 
of course, president of Microsoft, Brad Smith, saying, like, look, honestly, I cannot say that jobs won't be impacted and indeed become obsolete due to AI. How straight talking was he at the announcement, Jackie? He was very candid because you had a room full of people who have serious questions. You had teachers who were wondering, how is this going to impact my students? Randy Weingarten, the president of the American Federation of Teachers, the, uh, sorry, the, the teachers union, basically also there uh, in collaboration with Microsoft saying, we want to understand how the company is going to help us understand what artificial intelligence is doing to our teachers, to our students. Students, what can we do to prepare them? And two things came out of this partnership. The first being you have Microsoft agreeing to basically host some training sessions for, for workers across the board. How is artificial intelligence being developed? How can it affect you? Basically kind of giving them the AI 101 on what the technology is. The next being how can we incorporate your feedback into the room where developers are creating this technology? And the third is where can we team up on policy? proposals. They said they want to, quote, join forces on putting forth legislation when you have uh, members of the Senate and Congress basically coming together and saying, well, we're accepting suggestions. And the two want to create an alliance of sorts to put together um, some proposals that are in the best interest of workers. Now, the other thing that is that came out of this um, is basically saying, look, we, Microsoft, understand that the collective bargaining process is important and we don't want to stand in the way of that. And so the agreement also includes kind of this neutrality template, basically terms that can say we're not going to stand in the way of or people organizing. Um, and that's a big step coming from a technology company. It really puts the spotlight on other companies like Amazon, um, which have not taken such a friendly approach when it comes to their workers organizing. Great context. Jackie Davalos, thank you so much on the world when it comes to Microsoft and the labor unions. But meanwhile, Brad Smith and Microsoft in general, they've been busy because, of course, they've been having to defend that relationship with OpenAI as well. It's been drawing a lot of scrutiny from global regulators. And the software giant has a simple argument when it comes to its investment in OpenAI. And it hopes it'll resonate with antitrust officials. The message is it doesn't own a traditional stake in the startup. With us now to discuss is Rebecca Allensworth, professor at Vanderbilt University Law School. And all of this comes about from Friday, we understand. First, the UK, the CMA, they're wanting to start sort of requesting people's input as to whether or not, de facto, Microsoft controls OpenAI more than would be well, seen on the surface of things. Then we have the UK as the US as well, regulators here looking into the relationship more broadly. From your perspective, from a legal perspective, how strong is the argument that Microsoft has some way acquired OpenAI? I think we don't know the answer to that question because we don't know the terms of that deal. I mean, you'll notice that he said traditional stake. So what I want to know, and I think what the FTC would want to know and the CMA is, well, in what sense do they have a non-traditional stake? Um, there's some reporting that they have a non-voting seat at the table, a, a, a position on the board. Is that going to be a situation where that member says, hey, I'm not voting on this, but if you vote for this, then I think Microsoft will pull out that could be seen as de facto having some kind of control. And that could potentially raise antitrust problems. So, so here's what we know about the structure based on Bloomberg's reporting. The $13 billion to date did not equate to taking an equity investment, according to Bloomberg's reporting, Rebecca. It was that 
Microsoft would derive half of the profits OpenAI generates up until a capped limit uh, due to its closed profit model. And that is the argument that Microsoft's saying. It is not a stake because it was not an investment in return for equity. The question is, do regulators or will regulators buy that? I think it's, a, it's an open question that we don't really know the answer to. So antitrust law is not well positioned to challenge investments. It actually is specifically said in the Clayton Act that um, acquisitions that are merely an investment, essentially that don't involve any decision-making authority, are not uh, covered by that statute. And likewise, if we're going to talk about Section 1 of the Sherman Act or Section 2 of the Sherman Act, other ways of challenging it under antitrust laws. I think that the regulators would have to see this as some sort of merging of decision-making authority. Um, and I just don't think that we know. Uh, at the same time, the antitrust laws are pretty flexible about um, determining whether or not there is some de facto decision-making authority. So this won't be decided merely by the corporate form. This will be a fact-intensive inquiry. And the facts, I think, we don't really have yet. When we have to therefore try not to speculate on facts, but instead look at really what legal groundings, the FTC has pursued a number of, well, cases of late where ultimately they haven't won out, but they've been trying to sort of swing the perception of where regulators should start to get involved, what really consumer protection looks like. Over in the UK, we know the CMA sort of backed off from its original view of Microsoft and Activision, and, but did force change on that particular deal. What do you think ultimately is trying to be got across here? Are they worrying about some sort of ultimate monopolization that could go into the world of artificial intelligence? And how do they get ahead of that curve? I think that's right. And I think the concern here is like so many of the FTC's actions happening right now, which is a major deep pockets competitor, um, one might say a monopolist, although I think in this case that's a little bit of problematic, holding an input that everybody needs to effectively compete. And that input here is the you know, GPT model. And the idea would be this is going to become essential to compete in so many markets, actually. And if it's controlled by one single entity um, that has the power to bring it to market and can exclude other people who might compete, that could be really bad for competition. As you point out, though, that theory of competition, which is not about head-to-head, -head, it's not about Microsoft competes with the ChatGPT product right now head-to-head. That makes it a little bit of a different type of challenge than the antitrust laws have been used to over the last 40 years. It's not precluded by the statute, but it is a little bit unorthodox. How much weight do you think a regulator would give to the idea that there are now many companies offering similar foundation or large language models? They're not the same as GPT, but there are other models out there. So this is a great question because this has always been a problem in antitrust. And what you're talking about is basically market definition. Is the market the chat GPT model? Because it is so different, it is so important, it does not have a substitute that we're prepared to call that a market. Or is the market, as I'm sure Microsoft and, and OpenAI will be arguing, Artificial intelligence, which of course is broad, and people have been using artificial intelligence you know, for many, many years, and there's a lot of competitors within it. The question should be about substitution. Is there a substitutable product for open AI's technology? And I think there's a pretty good argument that the answer to that question is no. Our thanks to Rebecca Allensworth, professor at Vanderbilt Law School. 
there on potential antitrust action against OpenAI and Microsoft. All right, coming up on the show, European regulators striking a landmark deal to regulate artificial intelligence. We'll discuss with Ashley Casavan, Managing Director at the IAPP's AI Governance Center. That's our conversation next. This is Bloomberg Technology. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. That we lose control of the machines. I think to some extent, and the hows are still very much being debated, obviously, of having the fail-safe mechanisms in place that humans can override the systems. That is probably the single largest thing that I, I think and worry about, is that if the machines can be, or the algorithms, or whatever's being generated, can be developed in such a way that there is no fail-safe mechanism, that it can be overridden by a human, uh, that's what worries me. That was ARM CEO Rene Haas speaking exclusively to Bloomberg back at the end of November about his concerns regarding generative AI. He shares concerns with European regulators who over the weekend reached a deal to formally regulate the technology. Joining us now with more is Ashley Casavan, Managing Director of the International Association of Privacy Professionals AI Governance Center, one of the largest and most comprehensive resources for global privacy and information. There is a lot in this EU AI Act. The top lines, as I see it, is the acceptable use policy, some disclosures about the data used to train models. Um, what is your kind of takeaway on the, the depth of how this has been regulated in Europe? It's quite significant. This is definitely a landmark deal that has broad implications, uh, not just for European companies, but companies all over the world. I think that the fact that they're really looking to align with international uh, definitions, so following and changing through these discussions uh, to OECD definitions, indicates just how big of an impact this will have globally. The whole difficulty was on one side fostering innovation, on the other side, well, protecting the rights of people, the user. And of course, this is why what it was a 37 hours of negotiations that took place. Ashley, from your perspective, does this in any way protect and ultimately innovation in Europe? Because many were worried about some of the startups, Mistral, for example, in France. 
Sure. I think that uh, it's really to be determined how this is going to be enforced and the implications. But I do think that uh, what's been drafted is an really what we've seen um, from the dialogues because we haven't actually seen the text of the of the final act um, will be left to how it's enforced. Uh, that said, I do think that really relying on product safety uh, assurance mechanisms uh, like third-party audits uh, will hopefully provide that balance between innovation um, for companies and then uh, protection of the public. What's notable, of course, is, yes, we've had an EO here in the U.S., yes, we've had much talk of regulation, but ultimately this is the first time you get real fines being outlined. I mean, look, they only add up to about 35 million euros, but that's a lot if you're a small company, and indeed it could be 7% of global turnover for big companies. Thierry Breton, of course, key negotiator in all of this, trying to drive it across the line when it comes to the EU, he was talking about basically how much the EU is leading here. Is it? And how much do you think this is going to set the scene for the global AI players here? Because ultimately, it's only open AI that seems to be affected thus far. It's a great question. Uh, it's funny that you're sharing that that post, I guess, is what we're calling tweets now. Uh, and the reason why is because there's been a lot of conversations in nations all over the world. You mentioned the U.S.'s recent uh, AI executive order that's really looking to understand the implications of these systems and drive um, some good guardrails around how to, again, kind of balance innovation, protect the public, but even really think through uh what different implications of these systems are given that AI is not one specific thing. And I think that getting, there was a lot of uh, countries that wanted to get to the uh, that gate first and um, get some regulation out there. Uh, and so it's great that Europe did that. Um, but I do think that there's actually a converging of a lot of these different guardrails in different formats uh, all over the world. Ashley, whether it's at the parliament or commission level in Europe or Congress here in America, do the people writing the rules and the regulation have a deep enough understanding of what it is that they're regulating? It's definitely going to be a resource implication in any country that's looking to uh, oversee some of these rules. That said, I don't think that they're doing it alone. Uh, we've seen how there's been a large amount of public participation in these processes, civil society organizations uh, providing feedback on an ongoing basis, companies that are brought to the table um, through not just um, some of this drafting dialogue, uh, but as we've seen with some of the voluntary codes that have come out and that were even referenced uh, in this through in the, the work from the commission, the, the G7 Hiroshima process, um, that those companies are at the table providing inputs. And I think we'll start to see that through enforcement. And again, there's a reliance on standards, which are typically developed by industry. So I it's a bit of a misnomer to um, think that it's just going to be relying on uh, resources provided by the government. Public and private relationship, one that you know well, Ashley, of course, previously you were Director of Data and Digital for the Government of Canada, so having to look around the AI and responsible AI a long time before all of this. Ashley Casavan, sorry, we thank you so much, Managing Director of the IAPP's AI Governance Centre.
Time for Talking Tech. And first up in the news, Apple said over the weekend that it shut down third-party applications enabling Android devices to use iMessage to communicate with iPhone users, citing significant risks to user security and privacy. And shares of the South Korean firm Wider Planet, which uses AI to produce advertising, jumped 69% in two sessions after it said that Squid Game's lead star would become its biggest shareholder with 3 million shares. Plus, TikTok agreed to invest $1.5 billion to combine its shopping businesses with Indonesia's go-to group. TikTok gets a 75% stake in that combination, which will run its shopping features in Indonesia, the company's biggest online retail market. And let's talk about e-commerce more broadly and the globalization of it. Because the little-known PDD, or Pinduoduo, has been surging in China. Now, it's Timu Discounts app. It's rivaling Amazon and Walmart here in the United States on Bloomberg's latest Big Take. We take a look at how the company's behind the addictive app is actually outpacing Jack Ma's Alibaba, also in terms of market capitalization now. It's even earning the celebrity CEO's praise. Bloomberg Spencer Soper joins us now for what has become a bit of an American addiction too. They might not know that PDD is the company behind it, but it feels like everyone's using Timu. Yeah, it's, it's come on uh, into the U.S. by storm in a little over a year. Uh, is really starting to gobble up uh, spending and market share. It had its big uh, Super Bowl advertising blitz um, back in February, you know, saying shop like a billionaire, you know, meaning you can, can splurge uh, as if you have a ton of money, even if you don't. Um, it's, it's really like an online dollar general in your phone, you know, um, uh, just a broad assortment of stuff, very, very low prices, and then the sacrifice U.S. shoppers have to make is, is waiting for delivery time. So that would be the, the downside. You're going you're gonna to get prices you can't beat anywhere else, but you're going to you're have to wait for the stuff to come to your doorstep. Hey, Spencer, what's the threat to your main beat company, Amazon.com? Well, I think right now the, the threat is exactly that price sensitivity. Um, is it going to win some of the market share from Amazon, especially maybe like a stocking stuff for market share? Uh, Amazon CEO Andy Jassy has given interviews where he says, you know, uh, their customers are still being pretty cautious. They're not buying big ticket items. They're buying the low cost things. They're buying the consumables. Uh, that's right where Timu is. You know, it, mo- most of the products are are low cost, 10, 20 bucks. Um, and then they also seem to kind of grab you a little more with a social element. They have a lot of games in the app. If you open it, it could almost be like overwhelming and jarring. It's like a like a casino in your phone with lots of spinning wheels and games about raising fish and farming. Uh, uh, so they try to kind of suck you in and, and grab your attention and not just your money. Bloomberg Spencer Soper, part of the team with the big take on all things Pindorduo and Timu. Thank you very much. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. I'm Caroline Hyde in New York. And I'm Ed Ludlow in San Francisco. A quick check in the markets and two stories that have been driving moves. Let's start in Europe with Worldline. This is a fintech company that closed up 1.5% uh, after Bluebell, which is basically an activist investor, said, get rid of the chairman, change the board. You'll remember Worldline. It was a stock that at the end of October fell 60% in a single day after it basically dramatically revised its growth forecast. Uh, and everyone said, what on earth is going on? Bluebell saying, let's bring some confidence and trust back to that name in the fintech space. And 
calling for those changes, which investors responded to positively. The other one is an earnings story. Oracle is put, uh, reporting earnings after the bell. Just a big focus on their data center business. It's about a third of revenue. But the story is, can they get access to the high performance GPUs that they need to build out data center infrastructure relevant to the AI story, both on the training and inference side? We have so many people on this show, Cara, that come on and say, why are we not talking more about Oracle in the same context as the other hyperscalers? They can offer the same thing. There's a big addressable market out there for people who want to train foundational large language models. Oracle just needs to build out its infrastructure to support that. And boy, hasn't just AI sucked all the oxygen out of this show and likely the entirety of 2023 when it comes to investment. And let's just go from those public market types of investments to the private, the venture capital side. Mitchell Green is on today's VC Spotlight. He is the founding and managing partner of Lead Edge Capital, growth equity firm, $5 billion in assets under management, investing across public, private tech companies, and also looking for areas of liquidity when it comes to the secondary market, Mitchell. I'm interested as to how much you think AI is just going to be the play for 2024, whether it's buying on the secondary market or indeed investing in early rounds. Thanks so much for having me in. I think that it's going to be, there's going to be a lot of things going on. It's not just AI. You know, there's a lot of interesting software companies being built right now. And I think it's a function of, you know, lots of different industries are going to be, you know, the talk of the town is just AI and Silicon Valley, but there's lots of people building interesting software companies outside of AI. Mitchell, the Friday lunchtime that Sam Altman was fired by the then board of OpenAI, I don't think many of us will forget. But the story I was looking into that week was the shocking liquidity on the secondaries market for OpenAI shares, largely through SPV transactions, some of which blocks of shares or, or units of SPVs were valuing OpenAI at $100 billion. Uh, I don't think our audience knows just how liquid markets for shares of OpenAI SpaceX are. Which names do you expect to be in this big 2024 market that you've outlined? I think you're going to see a, in, a, in, an air, in, a, in a world where investors, so people who invest in funds are limited partners. They are, you know, demanding investors, private equity funds, give capital back to their investors, in which case people are going to look to secondary markets to sell. I think you're going to see, you know, continue to see increase in companies, you know, turning to selling stuff through SPVs or secondary markets. Um, you're going to see a lot of continuation funds. Anything that drives DPI, which is money back to LPs on a net basis, is going to be a focus because it's, it's funds trying to return money to their LPs. And, you know, with a slow IPO and M&A market, that's just going to be exaggerated. Well, that, that's my question. Is all this activity in the secondaries market a precursor or leading indicator that we will start to see more primary rounds and more listings or exits in 2024? I don't think it's a. Uh, I think I don't think it's a precursor to it. I think it is a. It's a result of not having an IPO market right now. Why you've seen it? That being said, go back, going all the way back to you know Facebook and Alibaba and Twitter and. Uber, there's been secondary markets for a lot of these big companies, even in robust IPO markets. I think you need the Fed. I think investors need to get confident that the Fed is done raising rates. I don't think they need to lower them a bunch for the IPO market to happen, but I think it, or to pick up. 
but I do think they need to get a sense that like, you know rate rising is done, which you know who knows. Um, I expect we'll see more tech IPOs in 2024 than we saw in 2023, but that's not very hard to do. <laughs> you don't need many. Well said, Mitchell. I'm interested because you, of course, at Lead Edge Capital, do take part in well, the liquidity movement and buying up on the secondary market. And one of the valuations that we're looking at, I mean, we were hearing of the toppy valuations that you're still getting for an open AI, but well, a lot of these GPs are going to be under stress from their LPs to be well selling out perhaps at a valuation that isn't as high as it was previously. Yeah, so I think 2024 will be, or maybe not 2024, 2024, 25, 26, will be, you're going to see a lot of down round IPOs. And that doesn't mean anything. That just means a handful of fools who paid a higher price in the last round are now paying, you know, are now having a down round. It doesn't really affect the company they raised. The company's actually really smart. They raised money at X. And when they decided to list the shares, they, you know, became slightly lower than X. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, but, you know, and very few of these investors have blocks on these IPOs. So I actually think you're going to see a lot of down-round IPOs start to happen. It's going to take time. Now, again, we've seen them before. Stripe was like a down-round IPO. And by the way, down-round IPO doesn't mean anything. It, it can still be a great opportunity to buy the stock over the long term. It just means at that point in time, somebody at one point was willing to pay a higher price. Um, I think you're going to continue. Now, in the secondary markets, it just depends. Like, I think the price of OpenAI probably is a bit nutty, but what do I know? Um, look, uh, th- there are interesting opportunities. In, er- in a world where GPs need to, or, you know, people that run funds need to get liquidity, there's probably interesting, and, and have been sitting on positions for a long time, there's yeah. probably, you know, interesting opportunities out there. Uh, we just bought something at less than 15 times EBITDA for and it's a rule of 60 business, which means it grows, you know, 25 and had 35 percent EBITDA margins. That doesn't seem crazy to us at all. So maybe if people are looking to be getting into Stripe at a valuation that they find slightly more digestible, they're going to be able to do that in secondary market right now or indeed better in 2024. Who are those buyers at the moment? And indeed, who do tend to be the sellers in this particular type of market? Yeah, that's a great question. So on the on the sell side, it typically could be an early a fund that was an early investor in it. It could be a late investor that just needs to get liquidity to their LPs, uh, like a crossover hedge fund or something. Uh, it could be an early employee or a former employee, um, an, angel, an early angel investor in it. Just think of anybody that, that owns stock that might want liquidity. Uh, on the buy side, you know, depending on the type of company. There are a lot of secondary funds set up to do this, whether it's Goldman Sachs' secondary fund, um, you know, Blackstone secondary fund, Lexington, Collier. There's a bunch of them. Um, also, people like Industry Ventures. We obviously participate in secondaries. Um, additionally, existing investors in the company often have, you know, right of first refusals to buy stock in these businesses. And if the prices are attractive, they often do. Uh, you know, and then other, you know, other venture firms and that want exposure to a company. That's another, you know, we, we, we became yeah. big in, there's a business called TransferWise and it was primarily through company facilitated uh, secondary because there are two types of secondary transactions. I mean, there's multiple right. you're involved in direct stock. It could be company facilitated or just like, you know, one off rogue and rogue isn't bad. It's just different ways. This depends. Sometimes they're company organized secondaries. Mitchell, quickly, what was it? the name that you bought at 15 times EBITDA? 
I'm not, I, I can't think of that. It's just a software company. I would assure you that not one of your viewers has ever heard of, a, of the company. It makes time tracking software. <laughs> Interesting. We'll dig into it. Mitchell Green, founding and managing partner of Lead Edge Capital. Deep dive on the secondaries market. We're doing that more and more on the show. Thank you very much. Now, coming up, Elon Musk reinstates Alex Jones's account on X after a five-year ban. We have the details next. This is Bloomberg Technology. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. and websites that use AI to undress women in photos are soaring in popularity. In September alone, 24 million people visited undressing websites. That's according to the social network analysis company Graphica. It's all part of a worrying trend known as deepfake pornography. Bloomberg's Margie Murphy joins me on set with her reporting. At the center of that reporting is also data around the volume of advertising behind those apps and sites and where they're being advertised. Right. So one of the big problems here is that these app developers are getting a load of free marketing using social media platforms. So we saw a 2,400% increase from last year, according to Graphica, of referral links on X and Reddit. And you can see if you just search keywords that are associated with these kind of apps that the adverts pop up, there are accounts underneath them, there are pictures of women all kind of teasing and winking at you saying, come, come, if you follow this link, you will get to this app. Um, and it's just a, a free way for them to provide their services. But the, the social networks, since our reporting came out, have said that they're cracking down on it. But it's, they've kind of had free, free marketing for a good year now. I mean, some of them have also paid for sponsored content on Google's YouTube, for example, and a Google spokesperson said the company doesn't allow ads that contain sexually explicit content. But Margie, the also really worrying thing is a lot of the people who are being sort of undressed don't realize, ultimately. And also, I mean, of course, it's, it's a deep fake, so it's not actually real, but there's no sort of legal recourse to this from a federal level at the moment. Absolutely. There's no federal law at the moment that prohibits uh, non-consensual deepfake pornography. And it's 
it's something that people I've interviewed about this, researchers, um, you know, experts in AI, are really concerned about because we've heard for years about celebrity deepfake pornography, which is awful. Uh, but now we're really seeing normal people uh, becoming part of this story. Um, Business Week, did a, we had a cover story recently about these uh, this just awful story about um, some high schoolers in, in Levittown. And, and they were deep faked. They actually found the person who deep faked them. But it, it's just one story that I think will just keep happening, and we're just going to see more of it because there's no legal recourse for victims, uh, and the technology is just kind of spiraling out of control, really. Extraordinary reporting that both you and Olivia and the team at Bloomberg continue to do on it. Margie Murphy, we thank you for breaking that particular really unnerving story down for us. Meanwhile, sticking with the world of social media, Elon Musk has restored the account of right-wing conspiracy theorist Alex Jones on X after users themselves voted for his reinstatement. And of course, it was, what, some five years after his initial ban. Bloomberg's Kurt Wagner joins us for more. And not only was he reinstated, he then was, well, put on to the X platform in an audio recording with Elon Musk plus Alex Jones plus others, some lawmakers, to, well, discuss his return. What did you make of it all, Kurt? Yeah, I mean, this is a, a kind of what Elon has been doing since he took over the company, right, is that he's been kind of re- rescinding a lot of these rules and, and punishments that Twitter 1.0 had put out. And not only that, but but welcoming these people back with open arms, giving them a platform, you know, by Elon showing up on that Spaces chat with Alex Jones, really, you know, uh, kind of bringing his audience along uh, to to Jones's, you know, uh, rhetoric and, and message, right? And so I think this is all part of Elon's plan to sort of drastically change uh, what he views as X uh, versus Twitter and to, uh, you know, reimagine what this company is supposed to look like. As Caro outlined, Musk did a poll, right? It asked the user base, vote on this. I think it's worth reminding our audience the origin story, why Alex Jones was removed in the first place. Yeah, so he was uh, banned back in 2018. He had been a a repeat rules violator under Twitter's uh, prior management. Uh, You know, I believe the last straw was ultimately that he he had come out and sort of attacked or been attacking uh, members of the media. If I recall, I think he even said something uh, in a video of his around, you know, get your battle rifles ready for the media. Right. And so he was banned ultimately for violating the rules around, uh, you know, harassment and and, and glorifying violence. And so, uh, you know, those are the types of things, of course, that that Musk has sort of said he doesn't care much about. Right. As long as something mm-hmm. is not illegal, he, he thinks it should be fine. And so that's why we're seeing a lot of these people that Twitter 1.0 had banned or punished start to turn to X. I mean, of course, Elon did say I vehemently disagree with what he said about Sandy Hook, but right. it is a platform that believes in freedom of speech, or are we not? But what's notable is November 2022, he posted saying, and, and this, of course, is an emotive subject for crucially Elon and many more, that his firstborn child died in his arms. I felt his last heartbeat. I have no mercy for anyone who would use deaths of children for gain, politics right. or fame. So he sort of did an about turn. Now, what's interesting in all of this, and we, and we make a sort of a, a movement here here to a different story that's occurring on X is that another voice has taken actually sort of off the platform to start a different version of subscriber growth for himself. And I just want to ask you about Tucker Carlson. Of course, we understand he's mm. not not launching a new news service on X, but in fact, he's doing a streaming service of his own called Tucker Carlson Network. And it seems as though it's he explored launching on X, but it didn't work out, Kurt. Yeah, well, I mean, the thing is, is there, there's a reason that X 
is not TV, right? And and we saw them try to do this. You may recall many, many years ago in 2016, they kind of tried to, to make Twitter a, a streaming service, right? Uh, they got the NFL on there. They got a bunch of deals uh, with, with other media publishers and it just didn't work. And so I think that Twitter or now X obviously usually serves best as a complement to TV. And my guess is that Tucker Carlson probably figured that out himself as he was, you know, trying to to build up this new platform. And so I have no doubt, given his relationship with Elon and the fact that they seem to be buddy-buddy, I have no doubt that X will continue to be sort of an important uh, uh, distribution channel for him. But, you know, X is not a video or TV service. And, and despite Elon's ambitions, you know, they haven't been able to turn it into one yet. Bloomberg's Kurt Wagner, good to have you back after a few weeks Thank and you. months away from the show. Kurt Wagner, they're out in Denver. Okay, for today's Going Viral, we're looking at Apple, the iPhone maker, offering incentives to artists and record labels to produce music using a spatial audio technology that surrounds listeners in sound. Starting next year, the company plans to give added weighting to streams of songs that are mixed in Dolby Atmos technology, according to Bloomberg sources. That could mean higher royalty payments for artists who are the first to embrace the technology made by Dolby Laboratories. Caroline. Well, let's stick with Apple and, well, turn our attention to health, to wellness. In 2024, Bloomberg reportedly showed that Apple is planning on an updated watch that will detect, detect potentially blood pressure, sleep apnea, and much more. But let's just discuss look, where we are with wearables, where we are with digital fitness, how we're consuming it. It's a CEO of Future. It's a company that pairs users with coaches and is backed by investors such as Klein & Perkins, Coast Ventures, Founders Fund, and many more. I'm pleased to welcome Rishi Mandel. Great to have you here. And Ultimately, we are seeing this new type of relationship with us and our fitness and actually knowledge of our own wellness at this moment. How much is that being driven by wearables, VR and the like? Yeah, there's 100 million plus wearables out there now and uh, better than ever we can understand each individual. What's interesting is the history of health understanding in the Western world is actually based on men. Uh, recruited studies, small populations, and so imagine a world where now we're getting inputs about every individual, how women's health might change and evolve. That's really exciting to see. As you said, the consumer's thinking a lot about health and fitness and in an AI world, Oftentimes, the biggest winners are those who have the largest proprietary data sets. And so you think about a company like Apple now not just has um, how you're moving through the world and maybe blood glucose and certain types of markers. Bridging across all that information can help tailor to an individual better what they should be doing, when, why. Um, and then you can build really innovative delivery mechanisms on top of that. Yeah, I mean, I've been sort of a guinea pig to a certain extent, got a wearable ring because it was meant to be a better for women tracking cycles and the like but ultimately I haven't found it that good at it it didn't realize I had COVID yeah I have no idea if the calorie content is actually true from what I'm currently monitoring Great point. but I am interested in your perspective of how many therefore are using you from women versus men what are the demographics who are coming to your platform yeah. when wanting this one-on-one -on -one sort of service at the moment yeah no and I love what you're talking about about the lack of accuracy or frankly a lot of that data is just hard to 
parse through on your own. So with Future, we match every single person with a coach. Now that coach is AI assisted, able to sift through so much data, not because they're manually doing it, but rather we've built some technology to allow them to spot trends, interpret different um, uh, markers about you. And so right now what we see is a lot of AI is rudimentary in health. And what we're going to see over the next five years, I think, is, is an explosion of this idea of augmented intelligence. Mm -hmm. Taking your physician and making sure they're backed by the latest and greatest, armed with that information. Taking a radiologist, maybe double-checking a scan to make sure they don't miss something. But there's still that human there. And with Future, that's what we see is with fitness, we give you a coach. That coach is highly assisted in building your program, your training program, whether you're running outside, working out in a gym, at home, or all three, which is very common. And then we actually use a lot of AI to help augment for that coach what time of day to reach out to Caroline and what's the right thing to say and what are the trends that we're observing. That augmentation, I think, is really powerful. And to answer your question, it's about 50-50 men and women who reach out to, to get a coach on Future. Hey, Rishi, real quick. Is it fitness that's going to be the driver of wearables adoption or is it health data that's going to be the principal driver? You know, the reason we started with fitness is because there is a uh, daily and very um, uh, common interaction with fitness. People typically who are engaging with it are doing it daily, weekly, that kind of cadence. And what I was saying earlier is the biggest winners in an AI world are those who have the largest, most you know, proprietary data sets. And so when we interact with a member every single day, we can come to understand their life in a fulsome way. Mm. Our average member will trade three text messages every single day with their coach, a thousand a year. Yeah. Lay that on top of the biometrics we get from wearables, lay that on top of the understanding of your behaviors, and now you have a really big picture. Rishi Mandel, wish we had longer future CEO there. That is it from this edition of Bloomberg Technology. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.